North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Welcome, listeners, to the Impossible State podcast at CSIS. We hope that you are all being safe and staying strong. This is Victor Cha, Senior Advisor and Career Chair at CSIS and Vice Dean and Professor at Georgetown. I'm standing in for our host, Andrew Schwartz, today, but Andrew will be back with us soon. The Impossible State has been on a bit of a summer break, but we'll be coming to you with new podcast episodes this fall, so stay tuned. On this episode, we will be talking about all things Korea and China with our two guests. Joining us from New York is Sue Terry, Senior Fellow in the Korea Chair at CSIS and former CIA and NSC. And joining us from Seoul is John Delury, Professor of Chinese Studies at Yonsei University, where he is also Chair of the International Cooperation Program. John is a celebrated scholar and author, including a recent article, Trump and North Korea, The Art of the Deal in Foreign Affairs Magazine. Sue Terry is also a celebrated author and recently published a piece in Foreign Affairs on Trump and the U.S.-South Korean alliance. So thanks to both John and Sue for joining us today. Why don't we get into our discussion now? Starting with North Korea, perhaps we could start with this announcement of the 8th Party Congress uh, that came out of Pyongyang for next January. John, I was going to ask you, you know, why the announcement now? What does it mean? What are the issues that would be discussed at a gathering like this? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast, Victor, and joining Sumi. It's a lot of fun. So when I saw the news earlier here, Soul Time, one thing that struck me is we're going to read this in the context of stuff that's going on right now. But I stepping back quickly, I wondered if the timing of this is driven by a broader goal of Kim Jong-un's to regularize the way that the apparatus of, you know, party and government works in North Korea. I mean, I would guess, actually, that he has an idea of, of holding Congresses every five years and linking it also to these 10-year economic strategies within which there are five-year economic plans you know, he's kind of linked those two in terms of what it seems the main agenda item for the party Congress is. And if you look back at the history of the Congresses, it never quite had that kind of regularity. But I think in the earlier Kim Il-sung period, there was at least some effort to do that. It was a little bit more regularity. And then, of course, during later Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, all that stuff fell apart. And so I, I think that we should try to step back and see it in a broader scope of North Korean history that this may not be about COVID and about the issues at the moment, but actually could be a kind of bureaucratization and normalization of what Kim Jong-un is trying to do. So that was actually my first thought, maybe the the most boring (laughs) frame to put it in, (laughs) but that this has been planned for a while. Do you think that this one in particular, they'll announce a new five-year economic plan or that the focus will largely be on the economic situation? Because they do have a very dire economic situation right now. Yeah, well, you know, they've been at some level of dire for decades now, right? And never, I mean, I think what's been remarkable about Kim Jong-un is his ambitions and the fact that he has publicly articulated economic ambitions, you know, and of course, from the get-go, even linking 
the legitimacy of the state, the party, and himself to achieving those ambitions. And then he's had to adjust quite a bit to acknowledge it's falling short. And it appears there was more of that in his public statements. And so, yeah, it does seem so far that they are setting this Congress up as economically focused and kind of regroup. How are we going to move forward? He's been talking for a while now about the problems in achieving economic goals. And and that predated COVID, which is intensified stuff. And it runs parallel too, but is also not directly a result of increased sanctions pressure or maximum pressure. So I do anticipate there will be a major economic focus. But of course, on the one hand, I'm saying this maybe been in the works for years. On the other hand, January, you know, 2021, that's pretty good timing. I guess we don't know when in the month. I don't think they said, but it gives a focal point for their planning and their signaling that's going to come after, you know, the next American president has been determined. Inshallah, we know at that point. And so it gives him a chance to, you know, kind of let the dust settle from the election a bit and then send a major signal, maybe right before, you know, inauguration. And so I would expect that he's aware of that and that they'll use it for diplomatic purposes as well, not purely economic planning. So I can't remember when it was, but I think it was in the last party Congress, they used the party Congress in lieu of a New Year's speech for Kim Jong-un to make statements about being open to dialogue and so on and so forth, I think before the diplomacy started. So yeah, I mean, that could be, we don't have a date, I assume, but that could be. John, you mentioned part of this might be motivated by COVID inside the country. You know, the regime has finally admitted that they have a case and they blamed it on a defector coming back from South Korea. So what do we know of the status of the whole COVID situation in North Korea and what we should expect with regard to that issue going forward? Well, we don't know exactly what the status is. What was interesting is that they did actually admitting that they may have this case, which is pretty striking. And what we do know is that they care very much about safeguarding North Korean people's lives against COVID, right? Because this is exactly the phrase that they were using last month through their own Nodong Shimun articles. So, you know, we are talked a lot in our capital cable programs, Victor, about how Kim Jong-un is dealing with a lot of domestic pressures right now, including, you know, North Korea's recent statement on the release of reserve food, uh, which may indicate the food situation is not great, I'm pretty grim in North Korea. But when North Koreans are right now saying safeguarding people's lives against COVID is more important than even economic development, they are taking it very seriously, right? They themselves noted that the country's emergency quarantine work is now higher priority than meeting economic projects that were supposed to be completed by uh, October 10th, ruling party's 75th founding anniversary, right? Then you add flooding, there's a lot going on, but their focus on is still uh, preventing COVID. So we don't know how many are confirmed, but we do know that they're admitting that they may have COVID and their priority is preventing COVID. And so I was struck by this announcement on, you know, they're holding party Congress in January and everything John said, but what was interesting is that they admitted that their economic ambition, that all the stuff that they wanted to do economically, they couldn't achieve, and partly because of COVID. So the bottom line answer is we don't know exactly how many people or what the situation is, but by the fact that they're so focused on it, we think you know something obviously is going on there. And do you think they're going to get help from China or South Korea? I know that Kyungi province wanted to send some humanitarian goods and tried to get a UN 
sanction exemption for that. But I mean, do you think that China or international organizations or South Korea will try to use this as an opportunity to open some dialogue with the North? Yeah, I think they will certainly try. I mean, this is a humanitarian issue. This is not, you know, linked to nuclear issues. And the fact that North Koreans are admitting that they have this case, this V defector, whatever you call this person who came from South Korea, they're admitting this case. I think that opens them uh, for the possibility of accepting help from South Korea. Maybe John can answer the China portion of that. Yeah, I mean, one thing I've heard here on the ground with, I guess, humanitarian groups, NGOs, as well as some of the diplomats who had access, at least until recently, is a real extreme wariness about receiving aid. And it did sound like the people I talked to kind of took it at its word, which was, you know, kind of paranoia about COVID, like we all sort of have. And if I'm remembering right, a couple of days ago, Kim Jong-un himself said something to the effect of, not that we refuse to accept any international aid, but we're going to be extremely wary of getting help because of the risk of bringing it in. And in a, in a sense, this mythic patient zero here of a redefector kind of goes to that sense of, you know, the external threat, like there's no domestic transmission, but that they have to be very wary. So, you know, I've heard of supplies piling up at Dandong, the Chinese certainly willing to help and others to help but that the North Koreans were really holding it at bay. So it seems that's gotten better, but they're still extremely wary about it. Yeah, that, that's what I've heard too. There's a real backup, like measured in weeks of stuff that's sitting on the mm-hmm. on the border because on the North Korean yeah. side, they've imposed a quarantine. Right. So I preface this next question by saying that we are all speculating here. So there was a report in Yonhap today that based on NIS briefing at the National Assembly that There's stuff, again, going on with regard to the leadership in North Korea. Again, this is second and third hand reporting, but that Kim Jong-un has delegated a lot of responsibility now, both for foreign affairs and domestic policy, to some of his lieutenants, uh, most importantly, the the sister, Yeo Jong, in charge of foreign policy, U.S. and South Korea. But Pak Bong-ju, the new prime minister in charge of economic affairs, I don't really know what to make of this. I'm curious what you guys think of it. I mean, it doesn't appear to be just wild speculation because it appears to be newspaper reports of leaks of a National Assembly briefing by Pak Ji Won. So I was just curious what you all thought of that. You'll go to Sue first. Yeah, well, Pak Ji Won has serious contacts also in North Korea. He seems credible to me in terms of sort of describing like, okay, it's Pak Bong Joon and Kim Dokun who is going to take over controlling the economic sector and so on. On Kim Yo-jong, you know, it's hard to know, right? At the same time, I think she was missing from some political meeting on August 13th or something. And now people are wondering, why did she not show up there, right? This was sort of supposedly a second time she missed an important meeting. So some people are then speculating, is she kind of demoted rather than having given authority uh, that these people are talking about? So it's, uh, it's hard to know. It, what we do know is that something has gone on, right, this year, pre-corona, when Kim Jong-un was out of the scene. So this what speculated all of his ill health. So it would not surprise me if she has been delegated more authority, only because there was some recognition that they should have somebody lined up to be able to sort of take over things. It would also not surprise me if the other case is true, where all of this hype and speculation about Kim Yo-jong being the next successor also deeply 
or know it came. And so, you know, it's North Korea, something like that is very hard to know. Although the other kind of details about who's taking over economic sector and so on, that's credible to me. Mm, yeah. John, would you like to also speculate as to what's going on? <laughs> yeah. Who, who doesn't want to speculate? You know, I guess to add to that, to Sue's insights there, I mean, I think and maybe hearing it here in South Korea, more aware of the South Korean context, you know, um, I didn't see any wild stuff that CNN can go crazy with. So it does sound like Sue's saying, like, these are fairly plausible points. It, it could be that this is the new NIS director showing off a little bit establishing himself and his knowledge. So I think, and I I saw some of that interpretation here. So I think that could be another level of, because of course you always ask from the outside, why are we hearing this intelligence now? You know, why do we need to hear this? And there's no sign of anything actively going between the two Koreas, which is of course the assumption at least of why he's there, why the new NIS director is there is to do another Sahun and get things cooking in the kind of private channel and that it would then come out into the public again. But you know, this looks more like within a South Korean world, uh, here's all the stuff we know, you know, and it hasn't gone dark. We still have an idea of what's going on there, even though the relationship, which is what I think people actually really care about in the South and the supporters of this government, what they care about, there's no breakthrough and no sign of breakthrough or progress there. Mm, yeah, no, that's interesting. So this sort of analysis slash speculation about what's going on in terms of the leadership in North Korea is something that uh, obviously the U.S. government does. And in, in that regard, at least on social media yesterday, there was a report that our good friend Sid Seiler is going to be the new uh, national intelligence officer for North Korea. Sue, maybe based on your background, maybe you can just explain to our listeners what the NIO for North Korea does. I mean, I think we all like Sid and we wish him well. We're very you know happy he's going to be able to take this position on coming back from um, USFK. But maybe you could just tell us for the listeners what this position is and what it means. So I think, you know, many people are sort of surprised when we talk about U.S. intelligence community. We are really talking about 16 intelligence agencies, right? We're not like other countries like South Korea that has one intelligence agency like NIS. In our intelligence community, we have CIA, DIA, FBI, NSA, INR, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Energy. And, you know, oftentimes we have conflicting analysis. And when you are studying a country like North Korea, hardest of hard target countries, there's no one right answer, right? We have, and we have all these intelligence agencies and they all have North Korea analysts and officers working on North Korea, for example. So Sid now being at the National Intelligence Council, which leads the entire U.S. intelligence community, to come up with one common analysis, right? He will be in charge of the entire US intelligence community's assessment on North Korea. So if CIA says one thing, for example, and DIA has a conflicting analysis or INR has a conflicting analysis, he will call in all these representatives from different agencies, make them sit down and come up with an analysis. And they conduct in-depth analysis they were author, produce national intelligence estimates, right, which is a U.S. intelligence community assessments on North Korea. So his role would be he'll be a top honcho in the intelligence community following North Korean issue. 
I think he's the right person for this, actually. I know him well from my CIA days. He has in-depth knowledge of North Korea and South Korea. He speaks the language. He's self-taught. So I think, you know, he also has been at the NSC. He understands the policy positions, I mean, how the policymaking works. So I think he's actually an ideal person to be the NIO on North Korea. If I can add one more accomplishment to Sid Seiler's list, he is a uh, Yonsei grad, little known fact. He did his master's at uh, GSIS. In fact, I'll occasionally send my students who are embarking on a thesis, I'll say, go read Sid Seiler's thesis on what Kim Il-sung did in the Soviet Union during World War II and inspire them. So it's great to have him there. And Victor, as you know, when you're at the NSC, you deal very closely with intelligence agencies like CIA and also National Intelligence Council. And he's going to be the one who's going to be the top briefer to all the senior policymakers, right? So he's going to be the one who's going to be delivering the intelligence community's assessments, briefing the policymakers, as well as being in charge of producing the intelligence community's assessments on North Korea. So that, that was what I was actually going to ask you. So if there is an issue with regard to North Korea or a community-wide estimate on North Korea that gets briefed to the president, then Sid would be the person who might be doing that. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, sometimes they will open up to, let's say, like CIA has a top senior analyst who might accompany somebody like Sid because they're an in-depth expert on, on a given issue, let's say. That's really fascinating stuff, I think, for our listeners. Could I step back once again from the granular and just get both of you parting shots on the overall geostrategic situation in terms of China-North Korea relations. We'll talk a little bit about China-South Korea in a minute, but I wanted to get a sense from both of you what you think the overall state of Sino-North Korean relations is. I mean, clearly North Korea needs a lot of Chinese help these days, given, as both of you said, the flooding situation, the COVID situation, the food situation. But based on just your overall research and policy analysis these days, could you give us a sense of you know, how is the Sino-North Korean relationship today? Is it hot, cold, lukewarm? I mean, it, what direction is it moving in? Yeah, well, I wrote about this a bit for a piece. Actually, Victor was part of the CSIS black box project of research on North Korea, and I enjoyed writing it. It was just kind of a general article for Asian Survey, year in review, you know, kind of looking at North Korea last year. And one of the main things that stuck out at me in trying to step back and summarize a year on the diplomatic front was you know, the improvement in that relationship. And I think that, I mean, we know Kim Jong-un put in a lot of work. He made a lot of trips. He's lucky he did it pre-COVID. You know, he can't travel like he used to. But I think he got five, forget now if it's four or five trips within a 12-month period to China, which is, uh, you know, off the charts. I mean, Kim Il-sung would go a lot, uh, but never that many trips in a in a 12-month Period. And then, of course, Xi Jinping visited. It will be very interesting in the South. They're working on a Xi Jinping visit here. And if and when that happens, even this year, there will, of course, be a lot and there should be comparisons between Xi's visit to the South versus his visit to the North. When she went to the North, it was funny. I mean, you could even see it was a very short trip. And yet down to the kind of costuming, and there were a lot of wardrobe changes on the part of the two couples, you know, the first couples, I think to make it seem like days had passed when in fact it had only been three hours, you know, since their last event. So they really kind of squeezed in a lot on that trip. It, it, to me, it didn't indicate that 
Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping are close, that they confer with one another, that they really have those kinds of discussions among leaders where they probe and they, you know, they coordinate or to me seemed like formality. And even though Kim Jong-un is making all those visits, it's very much with a purpose of letting everyone know he has a good relationship with, with China and that she wanted to reciprocate that, you know, that Xi Jinping also wants to, to show everyone that things are fine. So on the surface, they have really improved the relationship. And of course, it was in a terrible state, 2016, 2017, publicly in a terrible state. So they, they brought it way back up. But I will remain, you know, deeply skeptical that it's as good as it looks, because I think that you know, the distrust on both sides is there, even dislike is there. And so, you know, I think Kim Jong-un, any North Korean leader, there's always a wariness toward China and kind of looking toward what else is out there. So count me skeptical that this, what appears to be quite a good relationship, you know, is kind of rock solid and will continue or improve indefinitely. I'd be skeptical of that. So what do you think about the overall relationship? Yeah, John literally took words out of my mouth, <laughs> but I, I agree with this. You know, it's like many partnerships. This is a complicated relationship. I remember being genuinely surprised, actually, in the fall of 2017 or, you know, when China was actually implementing sanctions. That was really sort of where the relationship was at a low point, right? And well, yeah, people have to remember, like, since Kim Jong came into power, he never met Xi Jinping until... 2018, right? So John's right. I mean, 2017, it was not going well. And, you know, I was quite cynical whether China was going to actually be able to implement sanctions, but they leaned quite hard on North Korea in 2017, which was surprising. And then we had all that symmetry and diplomacy uh, since 2018. But fundamentally, North Koreans does not trust the Chinese. Uh, there is that mistrust that John just talked about there. So you know, it's it's a marriage of what what is it convenience, however you want to call it. But there's a deep distrust, so I, I don't know where it's going to be headed. My question now is: in the next few months, as we contemplated what North Korea is going to do, um, will there be a potential provocation in the future? I do wonder, like, how much the Chinese can rein in that on that. Like, maybe not. You know, I don't think North Koreans were going to do a provocation like ICBM to us before the November election. But let's say with the new administration, you know, we'll see if the Chinese will be able to still have some influence over, over the North Koreans on, you know, their next steps, uh, particularly when they are, if they are going to turn to a provocation route at some point. Well, and if I can build on that, Sue, I mean, that gets to the question of, you know, where are U.S.-China relations heading? Because if we're going off into uncharted territory, which is what it feels like, then that sort of pattern that you'd expect in the past of really a Democratic or Republican president, you know, when you have a North Korean provocation, you look to Beijing, wherever you are within the U.S.-China relationship and say, come on, guys, you know, they're your ally, you're the boss over there. So do something. But now maybe a Joe Biden administration would have that kind of instinct, but maybe not. And a Trump second, it's really scrambled, I think, our expectations in terms of, you know, in this scenario of a North Korean provocation, how is that going to play out if you have this endless intensification of, of the 
you know, hostility really between the United States and China. And the United States might not ask China to intervene. And China may have already coordinated with the North Koreans, you know, and they're they're playing a different game. So there are a lot of ways in which it could play out that would be different than what we're used to. Yeah, I mean, I think on that particular point, a lot of it will depend on who his secretary of state is. I mean, if, if it's Susan Rice, then at least based on what we've seen in the past is her inclination is to work with China rather than against China on North Korea. I think it's very similar to Hillary Clinton, whose inclination was always to work with China rather than against them on, on North Korea, but we don't know. But I mean, just on this, John, if I could ask you, so whenever I look at the Sino-North Korean relationship, I agree. I mean, I think Sue said marriage of convenience. I think in the impossible state, I referred to it as mutual hostages, like they both need each other and can't leave each other for whatever reason. But I've always wondered what the balance for China is between rewards and punishment when it comes to North Korea. Because we, as Sue said, we see the punishment side because they will join the sanctions regime in 2017 to try to rein the North Koreans in. But what we never really get a true sense of is what's happening on the reward side. Every once in a while, you hear about a glass factory or rebuilding the bridge. But the reward side never seems to be, at least publicly, closely coordinated with diplomacy strategy. If China's default is to try to always avert crisis and bring North Korea back to the negotiating table, while the punishment side is often pretty obviously coordinated because they join the sanctions regime. So I don't know like how you think about this, but to me, that's always been kind of a mystery like you know, on the reward side. Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's a good distinction. And I, I agree. I mean, and I, I'm always asking and trying to find anyone who knows, you know, who's got uh, even crude numbers. Occasionally on a trip to China, back when such things were possible, I would hear a tantalizing sounded like a hard number in terms of aid provision. Uh, but those are sort of ephemeral moments and you can't really pin anything down. I, I think part of that, though, is because it goes back to what we we're just discussing that the primary diplomatic game for China vis-a-vis -vis North Korea has been in a way China can put some level of pressure on North Korea or the stronger the response say to a North Korean provocation the more diplomatic credit Beijing could get with Washington and so you know all the incentives were to play up when they're being tough on North Korea but there was really not much diplomatic incentive to say, hey, we're doing this great economic cooperation project. You know, if anything, that would just be painting a target on something to be criticized. That changed a bit because, of course, South Korea was also aligned, you know, under close to 10 years of conservative administrations here who were not gung-ho on engagement or economic engagement. There was also no benefit to publicizing it in terms of China's relationship with South Korea. So those dynamics, of course, are different with South Korea. It's a point, uh, if they could get there, if they could kind of get the American peace, then it would be a point of where there would be cooperation and there would be diplomatic incentive. But what was interesting is in 2018, when there was engagement happening at the diplomatic level, never quite got to the economic level, I'd be curious what the two of you thought. I mean, my sense is Kim Jong-un was very much doing it in a, you know, this is a U.S., South Korea, North Korea game and keeping China at bay. And I mean, China showed very clear annoyance, public annoyance that they couldn't hide, you know, the idea that the Korean War would be ended without China proving it, you know, uh, that got 
the foreign minister Wang Yi out, you know, infuriated. You can't end that without us. You know, they were being left out. And so again, even though they would have liked to jump in that diplomatic moment and say, hey, we're we're ready to do this. Actually, they weren't really invited. So there's been a strange alignment where it's never really been in China's diplomatic interest. And therefore, we know it happens at various levels. I mean, with COVID, just out of self-interest to protect its Northeast, China must have offered and probably delivered assistance of some level, you know, because you just don't want that spreading. They're still moving across that border. And there are many examples. But because of the diplomatic incentives, as you say, Victor, we, we never really get to find out too much about what's going on. That's actually an interesting point. Like when we saw the Panmunjom meeting between the two Korean leaders and the president, I mean, Sue, I mean, like your thoughts on this. So if we look at this from China's perspective, right, the default diplomacy inclination of the two Koreas on the peninsula is to bring in the United States, right? Because North Korea wants to talk to the United States and South Korea can't really talk to North Korea without the United States approving of it. So from a Chinese perspective, it's almost like there's a huge vulnerability for them because the default in terms of progress leads to something like Panmunjom, where the three of them are talking all happy and China sitting on the outside. So that actually takes me to my question to Sue, which is the next and the last topic I wanted to cover, which is, so now there's this report that Yang Jiechou is going to South Korea, and I think it's this weekend, you know, ostensibly to talk about, you know, plus three meeting, these other sorts of things. Sue, I was curious, to, first, your thoughts on this question that John raised about, you know, China's perceived vulnerabilities when it comes to the Korean Peninsula diplomacy, and then what Yang Jiechou and the South Koreans may be looking for. They're meeting in Busan, I think, not, not in Seoul. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And this is why, you know, when I mentioned that, you know, Xi Jinping had no problem not meeting with Kim Jong-un at all, right, since coming into power and decided to only meet with him after Xi Jinping understood that Trump and Kim are going to meet. So I think there is that vulnerability and the North Koreans know it and the South Koreans know it. So I think that's absolutely right. I think I, I agree with John on that. I think with the South Korea and the Chinese, they're going to try to move on. Maybe the South Koreans will talk to the Chinese about how to sort of break through this impasse with the North Koreans. I know and they are also going to probably talk about this Xi Jinping's visit to South Korea that did not happen uh, because of COVID. But overall, when I think about China, I do worry about China-South Korea's relationship in the context of South Korea-U.S. alliance relationship, uh, broadly speaking. It's just uh, you know, what we will have to deal with in, in the coming years, right? U.S. is fading economically in the region in a way that's very consequential. I worry that U.S.'s role on the economic side will not look the same in Asia in general. South Korea is a middle power that's caught between the two superpowers, China and the U.S., affected by great power politics. And, you know, China is still South Korea's biggest trading partner. So South Korea has no desire to alienate China. It has no desire to alienate U.S., through our security allies. It does not want to be drawn into new Cold War. Uh, so it has to navigate very carefully between these two countries. You know, which means from South Korean perspective, we refusing to be drawn into a U.S. anti-China coalition, but at the same time have to look to compensate, right, for by working closely with the U.S. on some things because we're going to continue to press 
South Koreans on this. So I think, you know, South Korea has a very difficult road ahead in navigating between China and the United States. And, you know, but we'll see. But in terms of this particular visit coming up, I think they're trying to figure out, you know, move forward in the summit with Xi Jinping and, and Moon Jae-in. But overall, I'm worried about South Korea-China's relationship. John, what do you think, if it is a summit that they're getting ready for, like, what are they looking to do in a summit? I mean, aside from the optics of it and, you know, so-called normalize after the whole THAAD debacle, I mean, what else would they be trying to do in a summit? Well, I think that's part of the problem because at least the discussion around it that I've seen here, been part of here, you know, there's, there's not clear substance to what this summit would be. The, you know, the logical thing actually is they would come up with something COVID related because, that's what we're all really concerned about. And there is obviously constant opportunity for more international cooperation. And And I could imagine various forms of, you know, South Korea and China coming up with something around vaccine. So that may end up being the way that they try and provide some kind of substance to it. I totally agree with Sue as far as they're really trying to thread a needle that's very difficult. And I think a conservative administration would do this as much as the current liberal administration, you know, does not want to choose between the U.S. and China and does not want to get into a, a place where they can't have a summit with Xi Jinping, with the leader of China, you know, and there's so much uh, at stake economically in the relationship. And also, I think it's important to understand the threat perception here is very different from what you guys see sitting there in Washington, you know, uh, I'm, I'm aware of the American threat perception and how it's changed and how the, the dynamics of US-China relations are changing, the chemistry is changing, has changed so dramatically. And that simply hasn't happened with South Korea. You know, China is not perceived as a threat in the same way. I think even if it's not that substantive, I think that South Korea is at some level trying to make a point, not of disloyalty to the United States, you know, and, and I don't think they can be a bridge, although some may aspire to it, but simply to say, look, we all have to keep dealing with one another. And we, South Korea and countries in this region, we have to, you know, work on our relationship with China, even as we have, especially in security, our core relation with the United States. And so just having the meeting, if they could get Xi to come here, would accomplish that, even if there is no substance out of it. Just two last points. So on this question of threat perception, I agree. I mean, I think that in general countries in Asia, like you said, John, the dialogue on China in Korea and Asia broadly is very different from the discussion that takes place in Washington, D.C., in the sense that they don't view China as the same degree of threat as folks here in Washington do. But at the same time, don't you think that Korea and other countries uh, like the Philippines um, and others do sense a threat from China in terms of the way China wields its economic leverage. You know, the way they sort of, in draconian fashion, just slap sanctions, you know, in violation of all WTO rules, just start slapping sanctions on countries because they don't like what they do, or even threatening, like on Hong Kong, threatening that, well, you know, if you don't understand what we're doing, then who knows what's going to be coming down the line. So it's, it may not be the same sort of threat perception in Washington, but especially after Thad and Bananas in the Philippines and Salmon in Norway and the NBA and all these sorts of sanctions, that there is that sort of perception. And then for Sue, I wanted to ask if this visit materializes between uh, Xi Jinping and Moon, do you think that also means there'll be something coming on the Sino-North Korean side? Because 
you know, China never likes to leave one hanging, you know, especially the North hanging if they do a big high profile summit with the South. So let me go to Sue first on that and then go back to John. Yeah, I think that's right. Although not sure exactly what, but yeah, I think that's, that's right. Except I think it might depend on North Korea's actions, right? If you kind of, they stay quiet relatively until November and they don't give a reason for China, Chinese to act, but should there be, let's say, at some point of major provocation and then they'll act differently. So I I think it really also depends on North Korea's actions. But I think your point is right. I think they will be quite sensitive about the optics because Kim is definitely not going to like this summit between Xi and Moon, right? All the pageantry that's going to come with it and so on. So I think they'll be sensitive to it. Yeah. I mean, the difference that I see is that out here, maybe with the exception of Japan, countries in the region are smaller and weaker and closer. To China. And so even if the objective description of China's behavior would be more or less the same, the threat perception is different uh, because you have different options when you're right next door, you know. And I think the other, to me, interesting almost kind of psychological component to this is Americans are going through this self-described process of a kind of epiphany, like we've just realized China is not going to change in the way that we thought it was going to change for the last 40, 50 oh years. My God. You know? Oh my and God. And yeah, whereas like, I mean, Koreans, you know, aren't going to rub your face, but we kind of laugh at that. I mean, Vietnamese, you know, who are the last countries invaded by Chinese troops would not hide their laughter at that. So I think it's, built into expectations here of what it means. And it's not news that China is getting richer and stronger and has greater influence. And so there's more stoicism about it here. And I think that is what makes the nature of the threat perception difference. I mean, they they can't separate themselves the way Americans can at least imagine doing and are even talking about doing with decoupling. You know, you don't really have that option when you're so close and so much smaller. And then also there's just a very different story about this. And they've been telling themselves different stories. They've known China a lot longer and they've known China as the hegemonic power in this region for millennia. Whereas for the United States, this is like a revelation. Oh my God, we might be in a G2 where it's like us and them. And Americans are not used to that relationship with China or seeing the world through that lens. Yeah, very interesting point. Well, so this was a great discussion. Thanks so much for joining us. There's plenty more to talk about. We could go on for another hour, but I don't think our listeners have the patience for another hour because they've just finished doing their 40-minute workout. So John Delory from Seoul, thanks again for joining us. Our good friend, Sue Terry, thank you for joining us. And this is Victor Cha. Thank you for listening to The Impossible State. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? 
And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.